1: His story is well worth knowing, especially if you know someone with Parkinson's. Order your copy on Amazon or visit your favorite brick-and-mortar bookstore to grab one. Are you a Kindle reader? Audiobook listener? We've got those versions as well. Support Brian's Foundation, which supports those afflicted with Parkinson's, and pick up your copy today. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick I'm a lot of places but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. In discussing the NBA's Most Valuable Player Award recently, I mentioned that it seems as if the award tilts toward offensive statistics and voters give short shrift to what a player does at the other end of the court, to which someone said, you have a Defensive Player of the Year award, the MVP should tilt toward offense. I don't agree with that, but it's an interesting thought, and my guess is it does have something to do with why the vote goes as it often does. The odd part of debating the MVP award is that we end up microanalyzing the very best players in the league and calling out their shortcomings. It's an unfortunate consequence for having an all-time great season. But I don't know that there's a way to avoid it. A quick synopsis on why I gave my first MVP slot to Giannis Antetokounmpo and the second to winner Nikola Jokic. Giannis was on my ballot the last two years, previous two years, but not in the top spot. That's because I didn't see him as a playmaker, someone you could run your offense through successfully. The statistics were there, the record of the Milwaukee Bucks overall was there, but I just did not feel as if Giannis was the engine to it all. His energy, his defense, his skills, scoring in the open court and around the rim, all of that put him in the MVP conversation. But not better last year than LeBron James on my ballot, or James Harden the year before. He's still not an elite playmaker by any means. But he has improved, largely because he's learned how to operate in the mid and pinch post, as well as on the block. He took fewer threes this year and more mid-range shots, a necessary component to being a playmaker from that area. If teams don't feel the need to guard you, either because they know you won't shoot that shot, or you won't make it if you do, it's awfully hard to find someone else open. This is why I've stood steadfast on the idea that while developing a three-point shot is nice I don't want Giannis operating above the three-point arc that's not where he's going to be most dangerous that's not where LeBron James or Kevin Durant or any top scorer and ideally playmaker is operating Steph Curry is one of the few exceptions and even he when he finds the ability to get inside is doing more damage than simply hoisting from long range. So, my belief is the three-point shot for him is nice, but the mid-range shot is what is essential. And he's starting to show signs of not only having one, but being willing to take it and being confident in it. A player also can't lead a team if he looks hesitant or scared. And quite frankly, that's how Giannis looked a lot of the time that he caught the ball more than three feet but less than 15 from the basket last year and the year before. He's kind of looked that way at times in these playoffs at least in this current series against the Nets. It's a regression because he did not look like this against them in the regular season so there remains hope that he can find what he had that made me put him at the top of my MVP ballot. I also looked at the Bucks offense and defense in the regular season compared to Denver's. Both are better, and I believe Giannis is a vital component in both. The Nuggets had 1 win more than the Bucks, but I don't consider that a fair barometer. Jokic played in every game, while Giannis missed 11. Milwaukee went 6 and 5 in those games. How many would they have won if he had played? Do I hold it against him that he didn't? A host of players missed too many games this year to be considered for MVP. Harden, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, even though Harden and LeBron James, if I'm not mistaken, received a vote from someone, a fifth-place vote. I'm not sure why you would waste one on guys that had absolutely no chance of winning. But in any case, Giannis playing 61 of 72 games makes the cut for me rather easily. When we get down to missing a quarter of the season then it becomes a factor in my thinking. A third, for sure. Especially in today's load management era, where players are practically being encouraged to miss a few games over the course of the season. Show me the scale to accurately weight a team's overall record and how many games its MVP might have missed, and compare that to other teams and their record with and without their MVP. Embiid slid on my MVP ballot largely because he's not the playmaker that either Giannis or Jokic are, or at least he didn't demonstrate that during the course of the season. And I wouldn't have been so definitive about the difference between Embiid and Giannis as playmakers a year ago. To be clear, I don't mind that Jokic won. What I mind is the idea that he deserved it Because the Nuggets lost Jamal Murray and Will Barton at the end of the season and the Nuggets kept on rolling without them. Murray, for anyone paying attention, was nowhere near the Jamal we saw in the bubble. He was about as good this season as he had been in the regular season before the shutdown. Wasn't an all-star then, wasn't an all-star now. So let's not pretend that they lost an all-star caliber sidekick to Jokic. Also... A week before they lost murray they traded for aaron gordon and a week later they got back gary harris from injury michael porter jr blossomed going from a 14 point score in february to a 24 point score in april in jamal's absence their schedule also softened mightily during the time that jamal was out half of their 22 games were against non-playoff teams and only two were against teams that made it out of the first round. None of this should be held against Jokic. It's not his fault. He doesn't get to decide who they play and when and who's injured and who's not and who comes back. None of that. I don't fault him for any of this. I fault anyone who tries to paint the narrative that the Nuggets face the same challenges that they had previously, only they were doing it without a number of key players. Yes, Jamal Murray and Will Barton were out, but they had enough coming from other places that it wasn't all completely on Jokic's shoulders to keep them going, particularly against the teams that they happened to play at the end of the season. One last point. Chris Paul deserved to be higher in the final voting. I know sometimes we get distracted or swayed By seeing what a guy and his team are doing in the postseason. But I felt that even during the season. And it's my fault that I slid him down a bit on my ballot. I originally planned to have him third. And Embiid fourth. Embiid coming back at the end of the season. And what he did. Philadelphia finishing as high as they did. All of that swayed me. In retrospect... I shouldn't have been swayed. Uh, Chris Paul wasn't as high as, as he should have been, I suspect, because voters lean too heavily on stats to make their decisions. And much of Paul's impact on the Suns can't be measured in numbers other than their win-loss record. But you saw it in the first round when he sustained his shoulder injury and Phoenix almost immediately unraveled. His leadership, his floor generalship, simply breeds confidence and calm and there's not a real number that you can put on that. There's no statistic that I've seen or analytics that captures that. The ball is secure in his hands in a way it is not with LeBron or Luka Doncic or James Harden in that he produces damn near as many assists in some cases more but doesn't give the ball away. Someone made a case once about how assist-to-turnover ratio is not an accurate stat when it comes to measuring pure passing. And that is true because there are a variety of turnovers beyond passing the ball to an opponent. But it does reflect a steady hand, the ability to produce a shot attempt and therefore a chance to produce points with nearly every possession. That is a woefully undervalued ability these days. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast. Okay, so that wasn't the last point. This is. Jokic is a perfect example of players whose efficiency in playing limits their exposure to injury. A subject I hit a few podcasts back for those just joining us. Jokic won MVP in part, or at least he was given tremendous amount of credit for the fact that he played every single game this season and was the only MVP candidate who could claim that. Now his skills make it possible for him to have a huge impact on the game without tearing down the rim, flying by guys at 100 miles an hour, or crossing them over with joint torquing changes in direction. I believe that that is what is missing and why, aside from all our, or in spite of all of our advances and developments in sports medicine and uh, understanding of the effects of fatigue and sleep and travel that we're still having these catastrophic injuries to our star players and in part I say it's inefficiency in how the game's played and how they play the game and the fact that athleticism and doing athletic things in order to be impactful has become the rule rather than the exception. But rather than scrutinize what I consider the relative strengths and weaknesses of the MVPs any more than I already have, I'd rather look at who was in the running and what it says about the current state of our game. Check out these names and tell me if you find someone or something missing. Here's the list of players who received a vote in the MVP voting this year. Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, Steph Curry, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Paul, Luka Doncic, Damian Lillard, Julius Randle, Derek Rose, Rudy Gobert, Russell Westbrook, Ben Simmons, James Harden, LeBron James, And Kawhi Leonard. Those are all the players who received an MVP vote or appeared in one of the five slots on one of the 100 ballots from writers and broadcasters. Derek Rose is the exception. He received the 101st first place vote from the fans. Do you see what's missing? How about American-born and developed players under the age of 30 among the first five? or American-born and developed players under 30 who you could envision being among the top five someday. Julius Randle is the only American-born and developed player on the entire list, and I'm shocked 12 voters found a place for him among their first five. When it comes to MVPs, I'd say the fans got it more right choosing Derrick Rose than those 12 voters who chose Julius Randle. Look at the first six again. Half of them are foreign players. Another is 36 in Chris Paul. Steph is 33. The 20-something Americans can score the ball, like Devin Booker and Bradley Beal and Donovan Mitchell. Or they can shoot threes like Buddy Heald or Duncan Robinson. Or dunk like Aaron Gordon. Or do both like Zach Levine. The the rebounding picture is even more depressing. The top six reads like a United Nations roll call. Gobert, Capella, Vucevic, Cantor, Jokic, Valanchunas. What do they have in common? Skilled bigs who can rebound without having a crazy vertical, Capella being the one exception. The rest do it simply by positioning and playing angles. And they can stay on the floor because that's not all they know how to do. They can all shoot, pass, and defend. Oh, and they're all foreign bigs. Russell Westbrook is the first non-foreign player among the rebounding leaders, coming in seventh. How sad is that? The best American big? DeAndre Ayton at ninth, followed by Randall at tenth back to the search for MVP candidates among our 20-somethings. Someone who can run a team. Who can be a scorer and a playmaker. On a championship contending level. Where are they? I have hopes for the Memphis Grizzlies point guard John Morant. Atlanta Hawks' Trey Young? Sure, maybe. Some might say De'Aaron Fox, the Sacramento Kings. But I need to see a lot more. Rookie of the Year Lamella Ball? Maybe. But he has some serious strides to make as well. You know what we don't see among the previously mentioned? Someone who understands the game, executes well, and has a huge physical advantage. Fox and Morant are crazy fast, but they're not crazy big or strong. There's only one guy I can think of that shows any hope of being the complete package, and he took a step back this year for whatever reason. That's Jason Tatum of the Boston Celtics. The guys I admire as floor generals and can score, Fred Van Vliet, Malcolm Brogdon, and Marcus Smart, have to be savvy and play with guile and intelligence because they don't have a height, strength, or speed advantage. But who are the uber-American athletes who have learned to develop a game that doesn't live off of their athleticism? Not Anthony Davis. Zion Williamson? Flat no. You can hype him all you want. He is phenomenal at attacking the rim. Has no mid-range shot. Has no three-point shot. Shows promise as a passer. But invisible as a defender, rebounder, or shot blocker. That ain't going to get it yet. I have hopes for him because I love the kid. And he does have a special pizzazz about him. But his game is is nowhere near ready for him to be in the MVP conversation. If I'm forgetting someone, feel free to let me know. It's downright depressing when you think about it. It's our game. Yeah, I know Naismith was a Canadian, but let's be real. And our best don't know how to play it anymore. Don't be at all surprised if our national team struggles continue over the next few years unless we are very shrewd in how we build the rosters and don't just cherry-pick star names. hate to end it on a down note, but that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and re- review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Appreciate all of you who have gotten a great bump in the ratings And we are slowly but surely climbing in the ranks of basketball podcasts. Won't be satisfied until we are at the top. So we have a ways to go. Another super doubleheader on tap. We've got the Nets at Milwaukee and the Clippers in Game 2 in Utah. Put up or shut up time for the Milwaukee Bucks. And can the Clippers hold on? to a lead this time in Utah and come back home with the series split and the home court advantage. I'm sure we'll get into it in the next podcast, no matter what happens. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.